Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. Pod Sequentialism, of course, grew out of the Pop Sequentialism exhibition, catalog, and traveling art show. Uh, you can visit the Pop Sequentialism website at www.popsequentialism.com. I can't believe I spelled that right. And, um, of course, you can follow Pod Sequentialism online at Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook. And it's basically either at Pod Sequentialism, and that's Pod with a P, or at PodSec, P-O-D-S-E-Q. want to also give a shout-out to uh, a couple of things that are going to be happening at La Luz de Jesus Gallery, which is where I am the gallery director and have been for quite a long time, the uh, home and birthplace of lowbrow and pop, uh, pop surrealism. And, uh, of course, uh, the Pioneering Shop by entrepreneur Billy Shire, Wacko, and Soap Plant, which helped set the mood and tone of the 1990s and 80s and a lot of the pop culture zeitgeist that followed. Uh, part of the appreciation of things like animation art as an art form and not just as children's uh, entertainment, as well as tattoo and... Um, to a certain extent, even fabric design and folk art really exploded out of uh, Billy's pioneering of carrying Day of the Dead wares from uh, Mexico and other ethnic arts from around the world. And for most people, a lot of set de- decorators and set designers that brought these things into commercials, television shows, and movies, it was a kind of one-stop go-to place to be able to find whatever they needed to decorate a set in the right way, and especially if it was going to speak to Los Angeles. So um, that helped inspire this, of course, and La Luz de Jesus Gallery, where I am the director was the first place to show the Pop Sequentialism art show, which was the first time that a survey of modern comic superhero artwork in a fine art environment, and I was surprised to find out that I was the first, and uh, so now I can make that claim and I can boast it and I can raise my fist and yell. Not unlike Billy Idol. And we also want to talk about Gallery 30 South, which is the other endeavor I have with my wife. And we'll be having a very interesting show in the next couple of weeks with a comic artist who's been on this program, Mr. Tom Neely. And we were able to work with him to exhibit a graphic novel on gallery walls in the form of his adaptation of a Nick Cave book and the Ass Saw the Angel that uh, turned into quite a, a deal when the person who had hired him to do so had to come clean and say that they did not actually have the rights to adapt it after he had already gone about a year and a half down the road of doing so. So the only time you'll ever be able to see this since it will not see publication, it's going to be actually on the walls at Gallery 30 South. You can, of course, follow the social media for Gallery 30 South at, at Gallery 30 South. And uh, you can go to the Gallery 30 South website, and you can shoot us emails and ask us about the rest of the programming, which will also include, in the coming months, the first ever Los Angeles exhibition for Torben Ulrich, who was a young musician, jazz musician, and tennis player in the 1940s, hanging out with a lot of the Cobra Collective guys in Copenhagen. And uh, one of the people probably responsible, at least in an indirect way, for Metallica, as his son Lars Ulrich went to tennis camp in Los Angeles, which is where he met James Hetfield, and they formed Metallica. So here we are. We're recording at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles. And my guest today is Mr. Michael Christie. Hi. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And... I mentioned before on a previous show that I had gotten to visit a classroom of second graders Mm -hmm. and right here in Los Angeles, and I I talked about how impressed I was with their ability to tell stories in a sequential manner, 
And the reason for this is that Mr. Christie has put into the curriculum a an art curriculum that exposes the kids to comic book art and encourages them to use the story mechanic in some of the classic errors of things that John Byrne was working on. Like I remember I, I saw Alpha Flight and I saw Marvel Handbooks. Yeah. And the kids knew a lot of, a lot of stuff. They, it, it was funny that when they, they were looking at some of the original artwork that I had in the Pop Sequentialism show that uh, they were asking questions about Daredevil and they seemed to really know a lot of the, the storylines. And I was thinking, wow, they're really young to be watching Daredevil on, on Netflix and realize that they had pulled all that information out of Marvel Handbook. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about this program you've set up? And I guess first, how did you become a teacher? Well, I, I'm an artist as well. And so like I'll, I'll be at the... Uh the coaster show next week that's coming up, so I'm excited about that. And, and your uh, piece is actually already sold. Oh. And did I tell you who bought them? No. Mark Parker, the CEO of Nike. Oh, nice. So nice. you're now in one of the most prominent collections of contemporary artwork. Well, that's exciting news. That's good. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the show too. And it was fun to make those coasters. But so my I came out of I came into teaching from art. I went to art school in the '90s and had a strong emphasis on both craft and conceptualism. Um, but the type of art I was interested in making was painting, which is kind of a relatively conservative. Uh, uh, media or medium and uh, especially with the figurative artwork that I do and I I love it and especially the way that the pop, pop sequ- or the the pop surrealism movement has brought it back to the people I think as opposed illustrative style yeah yeah and making it something that people can approach mm-hmm. as opposed to things that are so conceptual that the public becomes divorced from the art medium you know from even wanting to understand yeah it. or being able to buy it too you know yeah. so it's definitely more democratic in the pop surrealism milieu, which which I value. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I still had this kind of uh, conceptual bent that I wanted to pursue. And um, I felt like some of the painting I wanted to do at the time, I didn't want it to be necessarily didactive or instructive or didactic and instructive. But uh, so I thought maybe and I, and I also admired artists who were uh, cultural critics like the surrealists and the Dadaists and thought that like, artists should be crit- critics of culture, but... Have it, manifesto, will media. <laughs> maybe. And I wasn't so strong that I had a manifesto necessarily, but but I wanted to... Um I wanted to be critical of the culture, and I thought about our culture. And one of the one of the things that dawned on me was that we have a real celebrity worship, and to some extent, like yeah. being an artist requires a sense of self promotion and participating in that. So I thought, well, maybe some radical gesture would be to pursue a place where I could apply creativity to an area that has absolutely no hope of celebrity or uh, right. getting any sort As of. As we attention. record this, Kitty Corner from the Pikey, <laughs> which is probably a a regular location for TMZ to, to spot celebrities walking out of a bar. Yeah, the irony. Um, so, um, but anyway, I wasn't, I didn't focus on like showing my paintings, even though I continue to make them in private and develop mm-hmm. that aspect of my practice. And so I thought, well, teaching is somewhere that could use some creativity and I, and I needed money too. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't uh, come from a background that had a safety net for me to try and sell my paintings after right. school. So, so I uh, needed, uh, I needed some money. And so teaching, I started teaching and, mm-hmm. um, and I wanted to, like, one of the reasons I wanted to do that is for a concern for environmentalism. And mm-hmm. and it was just natural for me to bring in the arts uh, to, 
as a way of teaching all of the content area that I taught, and especially comics because of my that was my first love, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, science fiction. So, and interesting before we before we head too far down that path, I want to uh, ask you something that it's you said to decide to start teaching, and it, it, that's not a necessarily easy thing to do. It's not like I can just open up a newspaper and say, "Oh, let's see if there's an ad for teaching today." So, how did you even find the venue to be able to become a teacher? Well, it's it may not be as hard as you think, um, especially now that we're coming out of the Great Recession and there's sort of a maybe getting into a teacher shortage again. Mm-hmm. So there are options for people, and and you know one of the things you focus on in this podcast is alternative money making, yes, uh, w- ways for artists to make money while art revenue streams, yes. yeah, exactly. So it's that's I think something that's value about this episode for people. They may if they have some sort of altruistic bent, they can mm-hmm. make somewhat of a living mm-hmm. and uh, and teach. But I started substitute teaching, and all you needed for that at the time was a bachelor's degree, and yeah. I think that's the same now. So I went to LAUSD with my bachelor's degree and got fingerprinted and started subbing, mm-hmm. and it turned out like I was I was good at it. So uh, schools were having me back, and I subbed for a few months, and then uh, the school where I'm at, Dahlia Heights, mm-hmm. asked me the principal at the time, who's Eileen Hattrick, who's you know a visionary principal that maybe we'll come back to later in the podcast, mm-hmm. asked me to uh, asked me to come on full time, and so. So I started, and then I got my credential. I was I started under an emergency credential because of the teacher shortage at the time, right. and I got my credential while I was teaching. So there are going to be certain times where the the credential criteria is going to ebb and flow, and like you said, we're we're about to enter another great um, absence of available teachers. And so I think a lot of people had the idea that in order to teach, you needed a master's degree, and certainly you don't need that to be a substitute. But I think also that. One thing that schools really appreciate is someone who fits into their program. And so like having a teacher that that is able to connect with the students uh, proves not necessarily proves to be popular, but is doing a really good job and doing a good job within that that micro environment because mm-hmm. there's LA Unified School District and then there's each individual neighborhood within that. There's charter schools, there's public schools. Yeah. So um, talk to us about the Dahlia Heights Elementary Project. Well, so uh, we've we've always had an um, emphasis on the arts and environmentalism, but I think like what you said is true, but the converse is also true that a teacher who is dynamic and exciting can shape the culture of the school too right. and build it into uh, what you want it to be. So I think this is a really... Uh, a really v- rich territory for artists to mine if you're if you have this mindset that you can go into a school and apply your creativity and your interests mm-hmm. and encourage other teachers to um, do that too. So ours was environmentalism um, to some degree and and the arts as well. But uh, I sort of adopted a pro- like a method of teaching like of arts integration where I was using the arts to teach all the other content areas. Right. And as I did that, like and I was doing my uh, credential program and I realized how much what I was doing uh, really paralleled um, the contemporary thinking of best practices like right. you know the, you, a curriculum that's rich in the arts is really the best way to teach to gardeners multiple intelligences which for listeners is one of the most important theories in education that just talks about how people have different natural intelligences like some people are visual some people are learn through movement and prefer that intelligence and some are interpersonal where they learn and enjoy interacting with people and some are naturalists and there's eight multiple intelligences but uh but some of that came to to surface during the the um the cabinet 
um, approval oh, hearings yeah. when, uh, well, when the person who became the head of the Department of Education clearly did not understand any of the principles of education. And I remember one of them, you know, the, the, the practice being addressed and her giving a completely crazy answer. They're talking about Betsy DeVos. Yeah. Giving a crazy answer that, that made it pretty clear that her agenda was to push um, charter schools for a very different reason than what we're going to talk about in how charter schools can be very valuable. Yes, uh, like um, Betsy DeVos, I think what you're talking, the particular moment that people were, you know, really kind of was a gotcha for her from Al Franken was the 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 gross versus the growth versus proficiency yes. so measuring growth on the test scores versus if they have like achieved to a certain benchmark but 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 that even belies like uh, a fallacy too that the tests are even actually valuable metrics for measuring education right right and that's that's an important thing to address too because i think that there was what you talked about doesn't seem to address something that i always thought was um an obstacle to making it into education as a career, which is tenure. And I think that when people like to make excuses as to why there's no money in an educational system, when I was a kid, they would point to teachers that had been there for 50 years and say, well, this is a tenured professional with the teacher's union, and because of that, this person can't be pushed aside. I think that now, since we've had computers in classrooms, I mean, since I was in junior high school and I'm, I'll be actually since I was in elementary school uh, and I'll be 46 this year, but we were part of that first generation experiment mm-hmm. of getting computers in the classroom that I think that teachers, I don't know if there's any teachers left that don't have at least a little bit of computer savvy and certainly all the students do. Yeah, um, there's, I think, like, a, a minimal computer proficiency is, like, inherent in probably everyone who's teaching now. But certainly but, 10 years ago, that might not have no, been and, the, the No, case. definitely. And, uh, but, but as far as the money, um, it's not, you know, the max a teacher is going to make is less than $100,000. $100, yeah. So it's, like, the, that's not the issue. We and have, that's the very max. Yeah. We, and it's, it's, that does not really reflect with the median income, which is far below half of that. Right. Yeah. And, and so that's one of like many propaganda pieces that yes. are being used by basically oligarchs to and plutocrats to destroy public education for yes. ideological purposes mm-hmm. in in ways that people are probably not alarmed enough about like right. the uh, the the what's going on in education right now is very similar to what's going on in uh, our politics in general with and what happened in the prison system and privatization of prisons precisely pri- privatization of prisons and you know Betsy DeVos her brother is Eric Prince, who is the founder of Blackwater, which is a private mercenary army, yep. and if listeners recall, his, that that army was used in uh, Iraq to disastrous results when you know, seventeen, I believe, Iraqi civilians were massacred, mm-hmm. and there were money laundering charges and all sorts of things. And so Eric Prince went underground for a while, but now with the Trump administration, he's back, yep. and uh, he just published a op-ed piece. I think I forget which newspaper, but like arguing once again for uh, using mercenary armies uh, to to fight our wars. And uh, so it's like, and I knew it's, it was coming. It's amazing. Yeah. These guys pop back up into the, into the culture. I remember, um, golly, going back more than 10 years now, going back probably 13, 14 years. And I used to follow military.com and used to love getting angry, reading their op-ed pieces. And Oliver Stone, mm-hmm. uh, Oliver North had a column and I'm thinking, yeah, this well, guy was a disgraced yeah. member of the military and military.com is giving him a platform to speak from. And it's it's interesting that this has 
always been the case, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, you know, look at uh, G. Gordon Liddy, you mm-hmm. know, becoming a huge... I mean, he, we thought of him as being like a crazy right-wing guy. Now he's kind of centrist. Right, yeah. Well, that shows <laughs> yeah. where we've gotten to. Yeah. But but you're right that people keep coming back up. Like, I mean, even on, you know, NPR's left, right, and center for a while, yeah. David Frum was on there, the Axis yeah. of Evil speech. And it's like, why are, why are we listening to him? But, yeah. I mean, even so, in the Trump administration, I run, David Frum has actually made some really good points, critical mm-hmm. of Trump and, uh, and the... Uh, um, drive for authoritarianism which which is really again relates to the to the uh, public schools and the, yeah. the privatization or charter school agenda or kind of corporate reform movement which seeks to turn public schools use public money to make for-profit schools interesting yeah so uh so betsy devos like to you know kind of touch on her like she's one of like several oligarchs who are driving this and her her reasons are for religious ones she comes from a school called the uh the um Christian reform, or not a school, a church called the Christian Reform Church, which actually split off from the Reform Church in America because the Reform Church in America supported publication or public education mm-hmm. in, in the United States. But Betsy DeVos's church believed that education should only be taught in the home. Mm-hmm. So her, as the education secretary, is promoting this agenda. But it's it's not just her. It's uh, it's Eli Broad. It's the Koch brothers. It's the Mercer family. It's the Walton family. It's mm-hmm. Bill and Melinda Gates. There's like a number of um, kind of you know, basically people who are plutocrats. They're yeah. using their wealth to uh, influence public policy. Interesting to hear that that um, Bill and Melinda Gates are also in on that because they usually wind up on the right side of, of politics. And it's funny, too, that, you know, you talk about Eli Broad and the Koch brothers who are huge patrons of the arts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've, I've always found it uh, really uh, disturbing to... I've I've seen various interviews with uh, with David Koch and 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 him talking about art and aesthetic and he's obviously a huge fan of of putting money into arts. He owns several major art galleries and they showcase really good work. Yeah, and Eli Broad. Um, a little bit different and you know Eli and Edith have, have kind of taken over the museum system in Los Angeles and obviously the Broad here is is the hottest museum with the giant collection of contemporary I will say that I understand why people who don't like that work don't like it but I think that if you even have a slight interest in it that their museum is the greatest collection of that type of thing and they've done a great job showcasing it yeah i I really enjoy the broad collection honestly they have a few pieces like mark tansy i particularly enjoy and Mm -hmm. as far as i know that's the only place you can see them locally as pieces Mm -hmm. um and other stuff i really like going to it and i like room full of john currens yeah sure it's it's great um and and so i think this is one of the things that's like really hard to wrap your head around with the privatization movement where you have certain people who are uh, on the left and promoting progressive policy Policies who are also like very much in this alliance with like very very radically conservative people to mm-hmm. undermine the public education system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it, it is hard to figure out. And the only sort of connection that I can really make is that they all sort of have the hubris of the oligarch. That means that they know they know better than everyone else. Mm-hmm. And so I mean they end up like promoting like 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 the charter schools don't get better outcomes than public schools they there's an and there's a long body of evidence over like that shows it now and mm-hmm. uh and they're but they nonetheless keep repeating these charter schools that 
charter school experiments, like pumping more and more money into yeah. it, even though we have evidence to show it. So it's they're falling a victim, or not? I don't think they're victims, but they're they're <laughs> they're uh, they're promoting this kind of anti evidence based thinking that we also see on the right and saying that there's no climate change and yeah. that. Uh, tax cuts for the wealthy will make everybody have more money. It's just, it's, there's lots of evidence to show that that is not true. Yeah. And uh, this thinking is rampant within the charter school movement. And we have more and more of them. And there's, there's problems with, not to say like there are some very good charter schools and they can be very good. The original idea of charter schools was, uh, the original idea of charter schools was that they would be a uh, public school classrooms or schools that had public school teachers, which would teach people or kids who were like having a hard time in the regular classroom or not the easiest to teach or, you know, so maybe uh, behavioral problems or learning uh, problems or whatever, and then come back to the public school or the rest of the public school and show what their uh, findings were from their kind of experimental curriculum. Mm -hmm. So my own classroom really has functioned as like what a good charter school would do because my I've had three principals now and all of them have given me the freedom to teach the way I want. And at certain times when the LAUSD has been somewhat more insistent on a particular program, I've been kind of able to go around that just because my principal was understanding mm -hmm. and create these results that were better and um, like some avoiding some of the like constant testing that happened in the no child behind era like of the mm. of the aughts and uh, so so I would do a creative and experimental curriculum using the arts but then I would share it like I uh, uh, the LAUSD's gifted and talented program promotes uh, best practices education and so some of the people there are Lucy Hunt and uh, Aaron Yoshida Ehrman, and they invited me to speak at conferences for the gifted and share my classroom agenda and uh, teach a class to other teachers about how to use the arts and how to uh, use best practices. With and that's what we're going to get into right after our first break. And it'd be interesting if we had a charter school as, as the, the commercial in the middle of this. But um, a, a good uh, reminder here that uh, advertisers, you too, can reach this prime demographic. But we'll be back in about 60 with uh, more talk with uh, Michael Christie about exposing children to artistic programs as a great form of educating them across the board. Right back in 60. Hello, and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. Have with me today Michael Christie, who is a teacher who's using comic books as part of his curriculum in education of the arts and other things. And before we, before we went into the break, uh, one thing I wanted to bring up is that bear in mind, of course, that with second graders, your teacher is your teacher the whole day. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like you, you only teach one thing, you teach everything. And so I think that you know, what you spoke about, we sort of touched on, and we're going to get into that deep now, is using things like comic books and the arts in order to make more palatable and more interesting the other aspects of education that are kind of like the broccoli on the plate. You know, mm -hmm. it's like that, that kids don't necessarily, although some do, love mathematics or love science or or love even reading. And the things that I really enjoyed when I was a child weren't necessarily the things that were most enjoyed. I think if you asked any kid in second grade, when I was in second grade, what their favorite part of the day was, it was either lunch or recess. And mm -hmm. so um, maybe a backup of art or, you know, gym. Mm -hmm. And with, with second grade kids and having them all day long, it is possible for at a certain point in the day if a child has a question about something you covered 
at 10 o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. they may still be asking you a question about that at one o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And by having access for that entire school day, you are able to kind of gauge vis-a-vis that gap, yeah. how much they're absorbing and how to either retool for that particular child or for the large group of kids. But what was the most effective thing and how did comic books become so much an important part of that curriculum? Well, like definitely having them all day is a huge advantage for what I call inquiry-based learning, you know, so mm-hmm. the, the kids are working, like I try and structure the curriculum so that kids work at their own pace. And right. so, so what I do is they have like different inquiry projects that say they get done with their grammar exercises, then they automatically move on to their own individual inquiry project that they're working on and that they can always get come to. So that avoids me. What's having, an example of an inquiry project? Uh, well, so, so, uh, one of them could be writing a comic book. So, like the, or another one could be researching uh, an extinct species and creating a diorama and an essay about it, or an endangered species, or creating a, a song in Garage Band to and with their own lyrics to teach people about climate change or other environmental issues. <laughs> Kids using Garage Band, it's amazing. Yeah, and they and they're also making uh, animated movies to film uh, film video to go along with their songs to make a music video. Wow. So um, stuff like that. Which means that you spend a lot of time animating their ideas. I do. I, well, I yeah, it. with the little kids, yes. Yeah. That when I teach the older kids that, I make them do all of it. But yeah. to get it done, I have to end up animating the, uh, the students' videos. Which means that you, as most teachers, aren't even making per hour what, oh, that, no. what that rate would be. And, and, of course, you know, when anybody's on salary... I've, I've refused to take salary when I went back into the gallery world. I was like, no, you're paying me by the hour because I know how I work. Mm-hmm. And if I were to take a, a stock salary and divide it by the amount of time I, in my day that I dedicated to my job, I'd be making $2 an hour. Yeah, I don't even want to think about that with, with my teaching or my painting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just like, uh, just like uh, yeah, just uh, put that out of my mind. Uh, but um, that's always been the kind of false equivalency, right? That Like when people w- would complain about... And I don't know why they do, because we've, we sort of cover this, you know, that the teacher salaries are not high. But there are some parents that have this idea that a teacher is a babysitter, mm-hmm. a psychologist, a counselor, a priest, a family member, well, that idea like the, is... whole nine y- the whole nine yards, and that they don't deserve to be compensated right. like any of those other groups beyond a teacher salary. Right. And I mean, to some, they're, they're correct in all of those assumptions about the teacher's role. You mm-hmm. do, And not just that, like, but also responsible for the kid's physical health with PE yeah. and like their nutrition and, uh, you know, teaching empathy, teaching uh, citizenship, teaching cooperation and in addition to the subject matter which is you know a reason why the standardized tests are uh, not a good metric of what you teach right like, the last thing that i care about is uh having families who are like judging me on like oh did my test score go my child's test score go up one point you know yeah. it's like i want there's a, a whole other set of things that i feel are what are valuable that i do as a teacher mm-hmm. but um to kind of go back to the uh using comics, you know, so so comics fit in with my second grade curriculum, like I use theme-based learning too. So the the first theme, and these connect to the standards at each grade level. For, so for second grade, they have a standard of understanding where their family came from. And mm-hmm. so, so the first theme is who I am and where I come from. And so they write an autobiography and draw a self-portrait, and then they do a family history project. Some of them quite well. Yeah, they're pretty good. They sit and look. And so that's, and that's part of the 
curriculum too, is that I teach them perseverance. So having mm -hmm. them all day long and having a flexible schedule allows them to spend more than 15 minutes on an art project. They can, they can take more time. And so the art becomes stronger and also, but they gain, uh, they gain the perseverance and patience to stick with something for a long time and then right. have the payoff of having it be great and realizing that actually hard work is more rewarding than doing something easy and getting it done fast. My single biggest regret about the way the education system was set up in the seventies, at least in public schools uh, in north of Boston was that we we were not taught art in a mechanical way that it was kind of like okay you know like draw tippy turtle type of stuff yeah you know where it wasn't even like make the circle make the line I wish we had gotten that and it took me well into junior high school of like trying to redraw comics that I was drawing an outline and drawing it in, yeah. which is the exact opposite way that you're supposed to be doing that. Sure. And so by not learning those mechanics, it, it really handicapped me. And now it's kind of great to see that, I mean, aside from all these other aspects of the education and being able to animate things and, and work in songs, that there is a mechanical background to it. Yeah. Well, and I also believe that like, like, their drawing practice in the classroom, like learning to see well, like mm -hmm. drawing is learning to see, but that translates into more of a metaphorical type of seeing, I think, to like see deeply and, mm -hmm. and uh, like promote critical thinking and understand better, like looking to understand is, is what it teaches. And it also goes in with science and observation. And so we tie a lot of it into the other classroom or the curriculum classroom cur curriculum mm -hmm. but then so after uh after their self-portrait then they move on to like them uh exploring heroes and mm -hmm. that's the autobiography or sorry biography projects where they research people who have made a difference and then they're researching comic books to see how comics made a difference i think one of the huge valuable things that comics can teach people is to be a good person you know yeah. to help the community and um you know with, with great power comes great responsibility <laughs> precisely yeah and you know in the x-men like they're feared and hated but yet they devote their lives to helping humanity and yep. um so so the kids like get to read and explore comics and I have those Marvel Universe ones to give them an idea and make a model of them creating their own superhero with an origin story and how they become a superhero and what their motivation is of why they want to help people. So that's where what you saw the kids mm -hmm. were like understanding it, these kids with a very advanced reading, you know, because the, the text in those Marvel Universe uh, handbooks is tiny. It's like six point font. Yeah. And they're reading like page after page of yeah. it and they love it. So. Yeah, those are more like mini books than really like comics. It has one illustration and a ton of mini text. Mm -hmm. And um, now, of course, you know, Jim Lee will hear this and he'll send you a bunch of DC, you know, indexes. I'm happy to like, get them if you're, you're listening. You're, Jim you're teaching the Marvel. You're not teaching them DC. <laughs> well, I, I, I should be, to be fair to the esteemed competition, I also have the uh, guide of the DC universe right. too. So, um, but... Having said that, I have to say I think the Marvel handbooks were a little more meaty, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, so, but, but I'd love to get any comics from Jim Lee or anybody else that are age appropriate. Yeah, that are age yep. appropriate. And but that's also the good thing about comics is that there's a wide range of age groups, you know, yeah. or like uh, what's appropriate to different ages because kids mature differently intellectually right. than others. That's one of the ways that they're different, and we try and address during teaching. So having in the classroom, like some of the kids are reading, like you know, very simple, like those superhero kind of like superhero squad marvel universe where they're like the play school type characters yeah. you know and they have those for dc as well so some of the kids gravitate to those while other ones gravitate to the marvel universe handbook and so right. so an alpha flight yeah an alpha flight which right? i've seen alpha flight in the classroom <laughs> the john Byrne alpha flights and i thought it was great that one of the kids came up to you 
and noticed without really paying attention that the art had changed. Mm -hmm. Like at a certain point, John Byrne went off the title and Sal Buscema came on. Yeah. And they're like, what's this? (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Christie, what happened? And like, what the art looks bad all of a sudden. I was like, yeah, I've noticed that when he came on a book too, like with Thor or whatever, you know, but, but yeah, that was really cool that they gained that visual fluency to be able to notice that even though they weren't like necessarily paying attention to who the penciler was and, you know, I could show them. But yeah, those Alpha Flight ones I just happened to have because I'll go to comic book stores and they have the dollar bill. They'll pay you to take them away. Well, I tell them (laughs) I'm a teacher and yeah, so either they give me a bunch or I'll, or very discounted. So I was able to get more or less a complete run of Alpha Flight and the kids are, and the kids get into, it's funny what they get into too, you know, because they, they'll like the, they like the, uh, the dynamic between the characters, you know? And so it's not the battles. And that's what I think is one of the other great things about the X-Men and Alpha Flight, you know, uh, there's research that shows that boys really like stories about boys, but they don't like stories about girls Mm -hmm. and girls will like stories about either boys or girls, but when you have a team book like the X-Men or Alpha Flight with powerful women characters like Storm being the leader of the X-Men, mm-hmm. I remember as a kid, like I probably when I was younger, I would have preferred to read about boys. But over the time I was reading the X-Men, I started to really appreciate the female characters. Mm-hmm. And so I think it promotes gender empathy and like a platform of feminism yep. in these comics that are especially team based. And when we were kids, they gave Storm a mohawk, which was great, too. Yes. And now I've got one. Too. And now you've and got my one. My personal yes. style is influenced by Storm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, by who was in the book at that point uh, by uh, Paul Smith. Yeah, Paul probably, Smith yeah. and uh, John Romita Jr.'s yep. uh, drawings of Storm. I really liked him. Yep. Rick Leonardi. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Well, the um, one thing I noticed too, and in, in being in that classroom and seeing some of the work they had put together, is that they were making their own comics and they were kind of, you know, doing one page of panels and then stapled together like mm-hmm. we would do when we were kids. And there was a, a really great range of sophistication, not just with being able to draw well, but a separate level of sophistication and being able to write well. And then beyond that, something that I thought was very interesting is that the kids shared their characters with each other mm-hmm. and implemented each other's characters into their own comics. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, obviously that's one of the best things about like Marvel and DC Universe, like mm-hmm. that. You'd, you'd see the other characters show up, and that's what the the current uh, slate of uh, Marvel uh, movies is getting right, mm-hmm. minus the X Men and the Fantastic yeah. Four. But um, yeah. the uh, but and that kind of went back to even the Spider Man and his amazing friends. You know, when yeah. they were kids, there would always be a guest star. So yep. it was like I. Spider-Man wasn't my favorite superhero, but I'd watch to hope that Captain America showed up or, you know, so, uh, so that kind of cross promotion is something that like I wanted to give them the encouraging them, but it also turned out that they really loved it because of the interpersonal aspect. Cause then it's like, they're working with their friend. They're creating a story with their friend. They're including their friend's character and like designing these stories. So I think what some of them had, like one of the characters from each got married or something. And uh, so it was uh, pretty interesting, but they, that's kind of shows that's another one of uh, Gardner's multiple intelligences, mm-hmm. the working together. And so for kids who don't have like kids who don't have it, we want to strengthen it. Kids right. who do have it, we want to give them the opportunity to learn that way and create well-balanced uh, kids with a lot of different intelligences. And one thing that's easy to take for granted from the outside is that, and I don't know if, if this is pervasive throughout society, but it may be. And it's that if you see somebody do, do one thing really well, there's almost an assumption that they do a lot of things really well. Mm-hmm. And so what was an eye-opener for me is that there was one 
one girl was a really, really good illustrator. Mm-hmm. Her spelling was terrible. Yeah. And it was, I was like, well, that's kind of really what the industry is in a lot of ways. I hadn't thought about it that way because certainly there are writers who can write comics and write very well. And some of them are illustrators and some of them aren't. And some of them were illustrators, but we never learned that. Mm-hmm. You know, like with Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison was was a comic book illustrator and was more highly sought for his ability to write stories than to draw. And so he just kind of gave up drawing. Mm-hmm. But what that means behind the scenes is that he can give a pretty detailed breakdown of panel design and... Mm-hmm that he can hand off to whether it's Frank Quitely or any other artist that he's working with, that he has really specific ideas. And when you see those things, if you've, if you've ever seen the, his breakdowns for the, for the stories that he's telling, they're very different than say Pete Milligan's were. Mm-hmm. Pete Milligan was never an illustrator. So his descriptions were incredibly detailed that he would hand off to Brendan McCarthy, yeah. you know, for instance. And then you see Alan Moore and you've got like a phone book worth of text for a comic that's 22 pages. And you're like, wow, I really wish this was in the comic. Like this is what really opened my eyes up about um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is that everybody loved it because they were kind of assuming that what was after that comic, you know, and the end pages of it was in the comic. And if you just read what was in the comic, it was a pretty typical comic book Mm -hmm. and it was well illustrated. I love Kevin O'Neill. But... I really wished that all that nuance and history and research was in the pages yeah. as opposed to this this far deep background that you didn't get a sense of until you bought the omnibus. Yeah. And we've always sort of assumed that if it's Alan Moore that there's a lot more going on than necessarily is, just as I think we always assumed that when you were reading a Frank Miller comic, that there was something a little bit beyond just Death Wish there, even if you go back and read it and it's pretty much just Death Wish. Well, man, if you wa- I, I watched uh, one of the, the second Sin City one the other night on TV, oh. and it's just like, you know, I loved those Frank Miller comics when I was like 11 or 12 years old, and just like reading it in my head, it sounded so powerful. But yeah, then when you because they're, they're adolescent yeah. um, power vacuum fantasies yeah. for, you know, males getting, you know, becoming men, mm-hmm. you know, it's like... Like you, your body's going through changes. You're starting to become attracted, and you can't do anything. But so that's perfect. It's like that perfect sexual frustration outlet. And even just, but just the dialogue, the way it's written, like it sounds like you know, like the Sin City. They sound like this hard-boiled detective yeah. kind of thing. But it's like the same as the like. It really sounds like Daredevil: Born Again too, if yeah. you think about it. It's or, all Charles Bronson. Yeah, and it's just like ah, you know, like this kind of like narrative, and it, it when spoken aloud in the movie, it's yeah. awful. I know? keep expecting every character Frank Miller writes to say, "Hey, zit face." I was sitting at the thing, and there was a you know, yeah. just kind of like, and it was like screeching tires explodes into mud and gore. You know, like yeah. this kind of like weird like nobody similar. speaks. Yeah. yeah. So it just seems like... But it is interesting, you know, and I think that it was kind of one of those kind of amazing moments that it, it took seeing how we are as children and how that really mirrors who we become later in life. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's there's a lot of opportunity, of course, for her to become better at spelling, and I'm sure she will. Yeah. But that she was so far ahead of everybody else mm-hmm. with her illustration skills. So you have to kind of pay attention that that seeing, as you say, that, you know, art is really seeing, Mm -hmm. that she's very gifted in that aspect. And I think that when we become specialists, we lose a little bit of that versatility. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think that there's been a lot of push or or at certain eras, there was a big push for people to become more versatile and less specialized. And I think there's 
that's kind of bounced back in the other direction where there's a lot of people who would we need specialists. Well, it's always a balance, right? Yeah. Like, you know, so you're trying to create like, you know, an example of that is in, in instruction for the gifted kids, mm-hmm. which is really best practices for everybody. The, the word is differentiated instruction. So you try and adjust your instruction to meet the needs of different kids based on their interests, their readiness, their learning style. Mm-hmm. And um, so like if a child is, for example, gifted in math, you know, like you, the parents will often, oh, we want, they're bored in math. We want you to move forward in math. And you can do that. And there's, mm-hmm. but as a professional, you understand that there's a certain degree of concrete and abstract reasoning that the child may not have yet to move ahead so far in math. Right. And so you want to give them experiences which challenge them in their uh, strongest intelligence, but also at the same time create people who are well rounded and build up those other intelligences. Like, like mine, you can take in, uh, Quote, or like surveys of your intelligences online, which is kind of interesting if you just Google multiple intelligence survey and you can figure out what yours are. Mm-hmm. And uh, mine have changed over the course of my life. Like I'm sure my kinesthetic or bodily movement intelligence is much stronger than it was. It'd be amazing to see what ads pop up on the side of your uh, Facebook after <laughs> yeah. you Google that test and participate. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> <laughs> As we learned in an episode that did not air. No. But, um, well, hey, man, thanks for coming on and talking about all this stuff. And, and I was really appreciative that I got a chance to be invited and, and go visit that school and, and show those kids some comic art that had been published and then and learn from a complete vacuum, you know, the, the capabilities of kids in that age range now as opposed to when we were kids. And I think that it's interesting, too, that, of course, in every school district has different funding and it's different um, – you know, budget to be able to dedicate towards different things. And, and, you know, Dahlia Heights Elementary is definitely a school that has a slightly more affluent um, and when you, that's changing, you know, we were until, until like, I think two years ago, we were a title one school, which means that I think more than 40% of our students were eligible for free or reduced lunch. Wow. And so we were like, we've always had a very diverse, uh, like, um, economically diverse and uh, racially diverse school, but in the past few years, yeah, it's been um, changing more, and so our 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 students have are coming from more uh, upper middle class families, which reflects the neighborhood. You know that as yeah. real estate becomes more expensive, then sure. that drives out poorer families and wealthier people come in, and that Im- that by itself can improve. Yeah. The quality of education because well, or, there's more tax money there. For sure. In a lot of ways. You know, um, one of the things I think that like the the kind of oligarchical, uh, quote, reforms to education, like they really overlook intentionally, I think, because it's kind of convenient if you're making a billion dollars a year to mm-hmm. like say that poverty isn't an issue, that we should just be able to teach away the poverty. But it's not true. Right. You know, like the poverty brings in so many issues of for starting with prenatal care. If mm-hmm. the child has not gotten good prenatal care, they're more likely to suffer learning disabilities. Yeah, yeah, Developmental disabilities. Yeah. If they're not getting nutrition, they don't have books at home. They don't have right. people talking with them using a high vocabulary. Can't learn when you're hungry. Yeah. The whole nine yards. But just lots and lots of things. And, and, the idea that like so the kind of corporate charter reform is that we want to just be able to fire teachers more easily if they're not getting good enough test scores and uh 
and and it's not true, you know, because the test scores just reflect the socioeconomic status of the of the school where the kids are most of the time, you know. And obviously, there's some exceptions of like the highly motivated child who will escape poverty, and and we celebrate these a lot. But and this is the American dream. But the reality is that if you're born poor, most likely you're going to die poor in America. Mm-hmm. And we have the highest child poverty rate of any developed country. Our child poverty rate is almost 25 percent. And so this is a this is a serious factor in education. So if we wanted to make a couple of meaningful education reforms. And I want to say something really quickly yeah. because I noticed this during the last election. And when we talk about these numbers, and especially when we talk about numbers of of children in poverty and education, that type of thing, when you look at the areas that have the lowest performance, even based on standardized testing, but I mean, I think overall, and that what that high school graduate, what job they're prepared for, you're looking at the bottom couple of states and you're looking at say Arkansas, mm-hmm. you know, in dead last. And what do you see? You see people in those states electing officials who do not have their best interests at heart, which drive industry out of those states because they make social engineering law, which is or maybe the opposite of social engineering law where they pass laws that allow discrimination and companies don't want to be associated with that type of discrimination. And so when they pull up and leave, it's the people who voted those politicians in that, that pay the price, not not the politicians. Yeah. And so I think that it's it's a weird kind of Darwinism that we're going through in the United States right now where people are finally being punished in a, in a very direct way mm-hmm. for their prior vote. They're not realizing it yet. Right. But they will. And I think when they do realize that, that there's going to be a huge push for that type of reform. We hope so. But don't don't think that that's just limited to red states. This is happening in California. Like Mm -hmm. we've got. uh, Well, California, to be honest, may be a blue state, but it's a blue state by three regions only. But right here in Los Angeles, like ours, we just had the most expensive uh, school board election ever. Ninety Mm -hmm. million dollars spent by uh, the corporate charter school movement like Eli Broad yeah. to elect charter school candidate or charter school candidates to push more charter Proponents. schools. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So um and 10% of the people voted. So even here we've had um, we've had like 6 million dollars leave our public schools to go to charters. We now have we went from 80 in uh, 2005 and 6 to 228 and what they're doing is they take they take uh and again some of them are not bad you know but there's these corporate ones and some of them are owned by like very crazy stuff like fatula gulen the the turkish imam who uh (laughs) who is like wanted for extradition for starting that coup right you know so he owns the largest charter school chain in the united states and stuff and uh, yeah but um but anyway so they're uh, they're funneling this money out and like instead they increase per pupil spending but not on the kids and they end up with executives mm-hmm. that have uh, have exorbitant salaries. Right. That's a big problem yeah. at that high end of that end of the charter school system. So, yeah. it, so it ends up with uh, we're, we're losing money on our, our schools but it's just kind of doing the same thing. That, Getting siphoned off the top yeah, at the bottom. To, to the rich people again, yeah. you know, and um, and that's a problem. There's lots of ways that it's ripe, rife for corruption. Like there's been $80 million in fraud so far in California already because the charter schools tend to be unregulated. And there's right. other issues with safety and uh, meeting the same um, requirements of teaching everybody. You know, mm-hmm. they'll counsel out the kids who don't learn well because right. what they want to show is that they're doing better based on these test scores. So teaching the easiest kids to teach is the best way of doing that. And if we all don't sort of understand that public education is one of the most 
important elements in our democracy, like health care and prisons and the police and the military, it's not something that should be privatized. It's something that we should maintain as a way of keeping our democracy safe and keeping it from really descending fully into a plutocracy and the, some sort of new feudalism where we have a few lords and everybody else is a serf, you know? And uh, so. Ronin with teachers is my new comic pitch that I'm going to make an image. Ronin <laughs> with teachers, which I've always loved. It's kind of a little bit like Mage. But um, hey, man, thanks for coming on. My and, pleasure. Thank um, you for having me. What some social media people can find you on? Uh, well, I'm at M. Christie Art on Facebook and Instagram, and uh, people, if they're interested in um, uh, holding charter schools accountable to make them what they should be, and rather than just a siphon of public funds, they can go to www.teachforequity.com. Also, I'll say uh, Lily Sarah Grace Fund.org is uh, an organization that I've worked with to start uh, providing more arts education to uh, schools. And, uh, and for parents who are interested in best practices education, they can go to achieve.lausd.net slash gate to read the uh, LAUSD's uh, gate webpage or gifted and talented webpage, which has best practices really for not just gifted learners, but all kids. Excellent. Well, that wraps up this episode of Pod Sequentialism. I've been your host, Matt Kennedy, and uh, tune into us on the iTunes podcast apps as well as Blog Talk Radio and wherever other fine podcasts can be heard. You can hear us too. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole. It's not. Um, you can, If you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.